Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. Well, um, man, it is a pleasure and honor to be here with you guys again tonight. I want to say that Pastor Doug Pearson and I were very uh, thankful for the praise from the 90s, right? We, we, silly, we're like, we're like, man, bringing it back. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, so, so, uh, where's Nick at? Yeah, so, so we appreciate you from, from, from the past generation, so. I heard that they were doing that song, and uh, it really does bring back memories. You guys are like, for real? Uh, no, it, it really does, and, uh, and uh, you guys did it well. I mean, really, like, you guys, you guys handled that really nicely, and so uh, uh, color me impressed. Uh, I sound like Brett Bartlett. Uh, <laughs> Lord, help me. help me. We need to pray. Uh, Anyway, uh, man, I am excited to be here with you tonight, and we are going to try to pick up where we, we left off. Um, you ever notice when you're trying to do two things at once, and you just you start turning your Bible, and you just turn like one page at a time, and then you realize that you're still in Second Timothy? So, I made it. I'm in Revelation now. Okay, so uh, I pray that you guys can uh, join me in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Before we, we get into it, though, I want to kind of do just a quick review, and maybe instead of me doing the review, does anyone want to maybe stand up and say, tell us about Ephesus? Does anyone want to, and please don't, I don't need someone who's going to give me like a five-minute like monologue, but what was going on with the church of Ephesus? Anyone want to stand up or just like raise your hand and just, you know, let us know? Yes. That was a very good uh, synopsis. Thank you so much. Uh, so how, how easy is it, though, for us as believers to fall in love with the work of God, the people of God, the ministry, uh, and all the while in doing that, we forget about communion with the Father. And uh, there is power in the name of Christ. And so the moment, no matter how purposed you are, the moment we leave that place of power, um, you will find that, that you may still be able to do ministry for, unfortunately, decades to come. But the power has been gone for quite some time. Brandon was talking about uh, how certain individuals have talked about this ministry and the ministry of the young adults as a movement. I remember a while back, it was a, a preacher who, who coined the phrase that, that the ministry of God, it usually it begins with a man, it turns into a movement, 
And over time, that movement has the potential to become a machine. Have you guys heard this before? Some of you? And that machine then becomes what? A monument. A monument of the past. And so you have Ephesus, which was fully purposed. They did not have the resources that they, that they would have liked, but man, they were, they were turning the world upside down with the gospel. And what a great example of a church. And yet, at the end of the day, because the ministry was thriving and so many things were working for them, they found themselves in a place where what was happening? They were more enamored, more purposed by the work of God than the person of God. And I'm telling you, the quickest way to turn a movement into a machine is that very thing, that place of communion. It is why, in God's genius nature, said, you know what, it would probably be good if you guys drank a little cup of juice and a cracker as often as you like. And you go, wait, what? Yeah, the Lord's Supper. That's the significance of something so simple. One of the ordinances for us to say, let's come together, let's let's remember with this very simple gesture of a cup and a cracker representing the the, the body and blood of Christ and that we don't depart from that. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing what happened this afternoon with the baptism? Don't you praise the Lord for that? That's something I'll remember for the rest of my life. Uh, And I I praise the Lord for us being able to be a part of that. Uh, Blade was right. It really is just someone dunking another person in water. It's a very simple gesture. But oh, would to God we understand and recall the significance of that that painting, if you would, that little thing. So you have baptism and you have the Lord's Supper, which are these very simple gestures. And yet, what do they always bring us back to? The person of Christ. It brings us back to, to who he is and what he's done. Help us, Lord, not to drift, to, to, to fall away from that first love. Amen? Who wants to help us out with Smyrna? That, that was... Simple in some construct, but also difficult in some other ways. Anyone want to talk about some, you know, No, huh? no, I don't. Anybody want to uh, bold? Who's bold? Alvaro. Uh, Smyrna was a church uh, age that was full of bitterness and death. Um, there's 7 million graves in Rome. Um, there's a lot of persecution for the church. And Christ is portrayed in Smyrna as Christ is he who remains. Yeah. Uh, so he's with them, and the promise to them is that he is um, Alpha and Omega. He's the first and the last in that church age. Yeah, that's yeah. good. Uh, so what, how did we see Christ in Ephesus? What was he represented as? The, the prime mover, right? And don't we need him to be the very first thing that moves in our ministry? And we need to get on that train, okay? Christ is the prime mover, and in, in Smyrna, Christ is the one who remains, he, he was there before the trial, and he will be there after. Amen? Amen? Man, that gets me pumped. It gets me excited. I get goosebumps just thinking about it, that whatever you are going through right now, Christ knew about it. He, he knew before it was to happen, and he is preparing you to walk through this valley for his glory. And we can trust him in that. I find so often with Smyrna that it's just a, it's a hard season. There's persecution everywhere. The church probably at times felt like there was no hope. It was a difficult time. It was a hard time. And yet what God says is, I'm first and last. 
I'm here with you, and I understand. I've been where you've been. He goes, oh, by the way, I also died. <laughs> like, like when they're saying, when the, but God, there's death everywhere. He goes, oh, but I did that. Like, I actually experienced that. And by the way, I live. Amen. And you can too. Oh, man, what a gift. What a treasure that is. And so we walked through the first two churches. I, I, I spent some time really kind of, uh, I guess, maybe building up a construct so that we can really dive in more quickly tonight. And so are you guys ready? Yeah. I appreciate Brandon praying over the, the service. I need to pray again for myself. Have you guys ever wanted to be bought in? Have you ever wanted to be ready for a message? Have you ever wanted to be just like completely locked in and yet there's something that's constantly pulling you out? I kind of feel that way. I, I, I'm, I'm asking the Lord to help me be locked in. And I'm asking that you guys would be locked in as well. Uh, have, you, have you guys ever wanted that? And, and, and it's almost like you're pleading with God. God, I'm here. I went to retreat. I paid the money. I've, I've been with, with, with other people, and it's been great. And I'm at the service, and we only have four of them. So, God, I don't want to waste it. And yet, while you're here even right now, you, you're, there's a fog. Can anyone relate to that right now? So let's do this. Can we pray together? Can you pray for me? I'll pray for you, and, and let's just see what God does. Amen? Father, we ask you right now to help us uh, with maybe even a feeling of being disconnected. Lord, we, we have let you know, and your word says where, where two or three are gathered, you are here in our midst. God, we're not looking for an emotional high, as you will in, in, at times see in, in, in retreats and camps. But God, we're looking for uh, true and lasting change. We're looking for identification. We're looking for ways in which we can identify where we are and where you want us to be. So, Lord, help us to get through the fog, the fog of whatever it was today that's distracted us, whatever it was today that, that even was good or pleasant, um, or even the things that we're thinking on as we return home. Help us to not be distracted. Help us to not have things that are occupying our hearts and minds. Lord, I pray for my own self that, Lord, you would help me to speak as you would have it. Lord, helping me to vessel that would be honoring to your name. And I pray that in the end, all praise and glory would go unto you for the furtherance of your gospel, for the furtherance of your name throughout all the world. Amen. You know, for, for some of us in the room, after we listen to uh, last night's message and praise the Lord, the message we had this, this morning... Even though we were listening to uh, the messages, and, and in particular, we were thinking about Ephesus and Smyrna, while we were keenly interested, while we were keenly interested in the works of the Ephesus Christian, and while we were concerned for the welfare of the Smyrna believer, for some of us, maybe many of us, we realized that, that you weren't describing me. We, we were interested in Ephesus, and we were, we were interested, and in, one would say concerned about the Smyrna church age, but as I went through it, and as you listened, and maybe even took notes, you realized you're, you're not, you, you haven't hit me yet. You're not describing me. That's not me. So then the question that I posed yesterday at the beginning, did I just describe you, possibly does that still lie in the balance? 
Does it still lie in the balance? Speaking of which, it could be true for some of us in the room that we are going to the church of Pergamos. And so Pergamos is going to be our next church. Historically, the city of Pergamos was the political capital of Asia Minor in this area. It boasted one of the finest libraries of some 200,000 volumes. It was in this city that parchment was first used. And it is noted in the scriptures as Satan's seat in the passage. And not surprisingly, if you do any type of research for Pergamos, they were known, right? They were known actually to worship a serpent. So the place that is called Satan's seat actually did involve the practice of worshiping a serpent. The actual church in Pergamos, so I'm talking about the historical church of the first century, was suffering persecution during the emperor Domitian's uh, time. He wanted and was requesting to be worshipped as Lord and God. So the emperor, because, well, he's the emperor, was saying, listen, I want everyone to worship me. Yeah, there was a practice to where people worshipped a serpent, but you know what? I want everyone to worship me um, as God. And that wasn't something that was strange for the emperor. They had so much incredible power. In fact, with, with the, the likes of, before you would see this, Julius Caesar and, and the like, people thought of them as demigods, they actually viewed them as not human. And somewhere along the, the, the way, they crossed the plain. So this was not a strange thing for him to consider this. Obviously, during this time when you have an emperor who is choosing to operate like Antichrist, in the first century, we have Christians who were losing their lives by resisting. Now, the Pergamus era, if we're going to speak about it in a prophetic manner... The Pergamos era in church history existed between 325 and 500 A.D. Following the great persecution in Smyrna, and yet we see also the remarkable growth of the church in persecution. Did you guys know that? That whenever the church is in persecution, that the church multiplies? The one thing that we desire to avoid is the one thing God wants to use in us to produce greater fruit? Wow. So we see that, that during this time of Smyrna, man, man, there is death and bitterness everywhere. It is a difficult time. Christ says, be faithful to the end. I am the first and the last. Well, following that, when all of a sudden the church just goes, boom, and it explodes, Satan changes tactics. Satan changes tactics. Instead of operating as a roaring lion, he fashions himself as the angel of light. This is when Constantine the Great, the emperor of Rome, enters into the scene. Constantine lived between 272 and 337 AD. And he was said, um, sorry, and as was said before this time, right, uh, before Constantine, as was said already, there was great persecution against the church. We just spoke about that with, with, with Smyrna. Such a dreadful time. During this church age, not of Pergamos, but of Smyrna, it literally felt like there was no hope. No hope. At least it appeared in this way and in this life. 
But then, then, guys, listen, seemingly out of the blue, a new emperor arose, Constantine the Great. And in what was, please understand this, strictly a political move, don't believe the, 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 the history books that you read of Constantine and how he converted to Christianity because he saw a cloud in the air and there was a cross on the shield and all these weird things. Listen, this was a political move. We're, we're not, we're not uh, unwise to these devices. We see it every day in America with our politicians. And what was strictly a political power move, please don't miss that, Instead of persecuting the growing number of Christians, the expansive number of Christians, there were so many Christians in Rome, we don't know what to do. So instead of persecuting them because they keep multiplying, instead of persecuting, he chose to make it the state religion. Who would have saw that? Who would have saw that genius move? While this had little effect on the way he lived, in fact, after he claims his, his moment of salvation, which, by the way, does not fall in line with the Pauline epistles' definition of salvation, after his claim of salvation, he still kills, and, and forgive me, I think it's either his brother or his son, it's one of the two, after the fact, because he thought that he was going to try to take the throne. That sounds Christian. Kills his own family. To, to, to keep hold of the throne. So Constantine, though, he begins to roll out the red carpet for all the saints who had placed their faith in Christ. Brothers and sisters, I, I don't know what you would have thought about this if you were in that time, but I, I know for me and what I believe to be probably the popular response would be, what a day this was for the church. What a remarkable moment for the church that I had family who were, who were persecuted. I had family who died. If you were a believer, mom and dad might have given their life, but you know what God did in you. And, and man, you had to keep following. And all of a sudden, an emperor says, I hear you. And all of a sudden, the church becomes the, the state religion. What a day this would have been for the genuine believers in Christ. Can you imagine the relief that they would have experienced? I don't know this. I, I haven't studied it enough, but I am, I am sure that there were parties. There were dinners. There were celebrations in the streets. We were finally free. There was a leader who cared. But unfortunately, all of this freedom, all of this freedom came at a heavy cost, and we will unpack that shortly. The name Pergamus, depending on how you break down the word, depending on how you break down that, that Greek word, can have two different meanings. Number one, the first meaning is a tower. Now, I don't know <laughs> if anyone was paying attention this morning. I surely was. And so when I'm, I'm taking notes and, 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 and Pastor Briscoe says, you know, a tower is never a good thing. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, like you're in my head, man. So, so the first possible name for Pergamus is a tower. That's foreboding. <laughs> like that's, that's, the, that's the example in the movie where everyone goes, oh, no. 
You know, the hero is marching along. He's like, isn't it great that Christianity is the state religion? We're all watching the movie already having known the history, and we're like, uh-uh, uh-uh, nope, stop. <laughs> we'll just keep eating enough popcorn. I'll stop thinking about it. It's that moment in history where you're just going, oh, no, I can see where we're heading. This isn't good. Pergamos means a tower. Now, also, if you find a way to, to, again, break down this word, it also means much marriage or through marriage or mixed marriage. Now, that's an interesting thing. As it relates to that heavy cost I was speaking to earlier, you see, as Christianity was made the state religion, the spiritual agenda of the church became mired with the political agenda of the state. And through Constantine's edict of toleration, if you will, the church entered into an age of imperial domination for almost 1,000 years. Much like today, okay, so let's fast forward to today. Much like today, the social gospel can be a cancer to the real gospel. And when the church, when the church marries the world, when we become wed to the world, the world always wins out. In Leviticus 20, verse 7, we are given clear instruction regarding a union of this type. Sanctify yourselves, therefore, and be ye holy, for I am holy, for I am the Lord your God. God, even in the law, says it is important for you to separate yourself from who? The world. And yet in Pergamos, as we have this worldly Savior in Constantine, we find that that salvation, when it comes to the world, always involves a heavy cost. Whenever we turn to the world to save us from our problems, I am telling you right now, it will not end well. In Pergamos, the church was now wed to the world in such a way that the Lord never intended. In this time, the world may have saved them from their persecution, but this salvation also brought about a new slavery. Let's begin reading from Revelation 12, uh, 2, verse 12. And let's see for ourselves this church, and let's see if we ourselves fit in this church. Revelation 2.12, it breaks down the church of Pergamos like so. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. So how is Christ, we just read the first verse, how is Christ portrayed to the Christians in Pergamos? While addressing this church, Christ presents himself with a two-edged sword. Again, let's, let's not just get lost in the church history. Let's make sure that we're recalling and asking the question, God, are you describing me? Is it I? Is it me? I'm not the hero. Am I in this story? God, help me to see if you're speaking to me in regards to this church. So Christ exemplifies himself with a sharp two-edged sword to the church of Pergamos. We know from verses like Hebrews 4.12 that the word of God is likened to a sword. 
For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now from this verse, it should not be a surprise then that Christ is seeking to divide the church from Pergamos. Christ is seeking to actually cut it in half. Christ wants to cut the church in half. So let's not be lazy in our hermeneutic. The word of God as it is likened to a sword is seeking to pierce and cut even to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Bible is not just a manual for living, but it is actively looking to separate you from that which is dead so that you will not be corrupted. Have you guys ever noticed how to, how to ripen a banana? What do you do? You put another banana that's more ripe next to it. Isn't that interesting? That when you... People are like, wait, what? <laughs> oh, that's, that's crazy. <laughs> Are you some wizard? <laughs> Isn't it interesting that when you put something that is dead, that it actually hastens the death of other things? When we wed ourselves to the world, when we, when we are connected to the... You guys are still thinking about the banana. <laughs> it's, it's, I know, it's like, poof, I'm crazy. Uh, When we wed ourselves to the world, we end up becoming like it. And God says, listen, I want to, I am actively looking to separate you from that which is dead. So then in Pergamos, we see Christ as the divider. Christ is the divider. Christ, we, we, we already saw that he is the prime mover. Christ is the one who will remain. But now we see in the church of Pergamos that Christ is the divider. He is actively seeking ways to divide his church from their marriage with the world. And just like Pergamos, the Lord has called us to be separate, set apart as well. And yet so often, is it not true that we have one foot in the church and we have one foot in the world? If I'm lying, I'm dying. Isn't this the case? How often are we trying to straddle this this life of ours with one foot still in the world? We're just trying to see what it can offer. I I, I mean, I'm a Christian, okay, so I'm not going to like do the things of the world, but I just want to see what it can provide. Yes? See, I'm I'm a believer, so I'm I'm firmly planted in the Word. I'm firmly planted in my church. I read the Bible. I serve. I give. I do all those things. But listen, um, and I'm bought in, man. Seriously, I'm bought in. But, you know, I just got to see what's over here as well. How often do we have one foot in the church and yet the other in the world? We're just trying to test our options. We don't want to commit too quickly or rashly, like a tightrope walker, hoping to keep your balance, only in this case you are divided in your focus. One eye is on the goal, while the other eye is on the audience. Simply put, you will fall. Like a spinning plate artist, 
hoping to keep all the plates unbroken. In this scenario, it's not an issue of with, uh, of if, you are going to whiff, it's not an issue of if, but when the plates come crashing down. Revelation 2.13, it goes on to say, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. So we saw that Christ is the divider. How is Pergamos portrayed? How could possibly we be portrayed? The very first thing he says is this, I know where you dwell. I know your home. It's in Satan's seat. I know the, the issues that you're dealing with. I know how hard it is to continue to follow after me. I realize you're in a very dangerous place. Whereas with Smyrna, the synagogue of Satan was present. Now in Pergamos, they are living in Satan's throne. And the church is now unwittingly married to a worldly agenda. Now we don't have time to discuss the details of that last statement. But as we have just discussed, Satan was readily at work in this city and in this church to corrupt the church of God. This is the goal in Pergamos. Satan is trying to corrupt the church of God. Just as he did in Genesis chapter 6, by intermarrying with the daughters of men. And just how he did in the latter part of the book of Numbers, where Balaam convinced Balak to corrupt the children of Israel by intermarriage with the nations around them and idolatry. Notice how in both accounts, our intermarriage with the world is the downfall of the church. It always is. Whenever we begin to intermarry and, and court with the world, it is the downfall. It's, and, and here's the deal, guys, and, and most of you guys might still be trying to figure out this, this, this church and whether it's you. The real, the real issue is it's not a denying of the faith. I hope I made that clear earlier. You are planted in the church. You have one foot fully planted in the church. You're not denying the faith. But rather, it's just a joining of hands with the world. A world that you once said... You left behind. I surrender all. All to Jesus I surrender. There was a moment in your life when you gave your life to Christ, which, by the way, I think we sometimes forget what that even means. When did you give your life to Christ? When did he take you as the owner of your life? When did that happen? At the moment of that, that, that time, and, and maybe even at the moment then of your baptism following what you said to the church and what you said even before the Lord is, I'm leaving behind the past. And yet now, in the strangest of circumstances, in some way the world has behaved to you like a savior, and here you are back. At one time you said you left it behind. There is no longer a separation of church and state. Quite the opposite, the church is actively looking for ways to please the world. Numbers 25.3 says, And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Since Balaam wasn't allowed to straight up curse Israel, he did the next best thing. He placed temptation in their path and seduced God's people. 
Now, concerning this church, God said this, Yes, you are holding fast to my name. You have not denied the faith, even when those around you are dying. But I fear there is a courtship brewing. I see a courtship brewing. So what was the warning for this church? And how can we likewise heed it? Verse 14. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. Jump up to verse 15. And so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. We talked about the, the Nicolaitans already with Ephesus. Like was just said, some were holding to this doctrine of Balaam. He was a false prophet for hire who didn't care for the souls of men. On the surface, when you read Numbers 22 through 24, his words seemed very legit. But as you peel the curtain back, deception and bondage was lurking. In addition, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was a teaching that believed that the common man could not understand the scriptures. The warning for the church was that they were already intermarried with the world, and they were being blinded by the process. 2 Timothy 2.15 says that some have forsaken the right way and are gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Boser, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Guys, listen, there is always profit to being a false prophet. There is always profit to being a false prophet. And there is a temporal gain. There is a temporal gain for the church to go along with the teachings of the world. The only problem is, is that it's coupled with eternal loss. Yes, there is opportunity for the church. And yes, there is temporal gain when the church weds the world. Only it comes at a cost, eternal loss. You choose. Jude verse 11 says, Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and, have, and, and ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. So not only was there a slow blending of Christianity with false teaching, but there was a teaching that you needed a priestly class to teach you, uh, sorry, to teach the common man the scriptures. This clearly being a beginning nod to the teachings of the Catholic Church. So what's the bottom line? And am I describing you right now? The bottom line is that this church possibly you, is allowing a blending of paganism with Christianity. The church was no longer separated, consecrated, holy, and sanctified to the Lord. Now, what? They were connected with the, with the, with the world. They were married to it. And secondly, they were convincing the common people that they, that they couldn't understand the scriptures. Do you guys know what happens when a priestly class rules over the body of Christ, when all of a sudden everyone believed that they needed a guide to teach them, what this ultimately brings about is blindness. Whenever there is a priestly class ruling over the people, just let me tell you what to think about Christianity. It results in blindness on the part of the follower. So what does Revelation 2.16 say to this sickness? 
He says, repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Did you guys catch that? Now, now, what is Christ known as to this church? The two-edged sword. Christ is the divider. And what does he say? You need to repent or I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The answer for this church goes back to Christ's character as found at the beginning of the letter. We need to once again be cut by the word of God. We need the word of God to separate us from the world once more. For too many of us, we want to follow the Lord, but we also want to be loved by the world. We want to follow the Lord. Yes, of course I want to follow the Lord, but at a cost, because we also want to be loved by by the world. Verse 17, it says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. So, to the overcomers of this age... The ones who refuse to be married to this world. What's the answer? He says, listen, to the overcomers, I will give you the hidden manna. For, that's for all of us to go, what? <laughs> I'm good, God. I don't even think Israel liked it after a while. <laughs> How about something else? I'll give you the hidden manna. Well, guys, what was hidden manna? Or what was manna? Supernatural provision. God says, for those of you who will refuse to be coddled, to be cared for, to be wed, to be connected to the world, for those of you who are not going to bend over to Constantine, for those of you when Constantine says, listen, let's all celebrate, you say, not so fast. I'm not in. No, thank you. For those who will not buy into that culture, he says, I'm going to give you the hidden manna. Manna. A supernatural offering of God's food that was for Israel in a time of need. They had no ability to create their own food. You guys got that? They had no ability, and the world surely wasn't going to provide them the food that they needed. So God supernaturally had to feed them. Hello, church. That's us. We need God to feed us. We need God to cut us from this world. So what's the point? Guys, we need to get back to the place where the word of God, not the opinions of men, feed us. That the word of God feeds us. But also we need to take hold of that white stone. We need to take hold of the stone that the builders rejected. Now, that's an interesting thought. God says, to the church of Pergamos, I have a sword, and I'm going to give you some manna and a white stone. (laughs) I'm telling you guys, the first time I read that, I'm going, uh, okay. (laughs) And and the manna, that's kind of easy. You think about the manna, and you think supernatural food. We need to be fed by God, not the world. Okay, so I got that. But I, I started thinking about the white stone, and I thought, well, man, we need to be refreshed, and we need to take hold of the stone that the builders rejected. In this stone, a new name is written, but only those who receive it will know it. Now, what was Pergamos known as again? A tower. It sounds like Pergamos was trying to build something. It sounds like they had probably some stones that were trying to be built. They were trying to build upon this unholy, ungodly marriage. Pergamos was a tower 
through their allegiance with the world. But Christ is willing to give you a stone to build upon. The chief cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ. What we see following the church of Pergamos is the church of Thyatira. And what we have is the offspring of this marriage results in 1,000 years of spiritual darkness. Following this unholy union in Pergamos, we see God's judgment on his church. So this brings us to Thyatira. Thyatira means a perfume or an odor or an affliction. An odor of affliction, a perfume of sacrifice. Hopefully that kind of gives you a context of the name. There was an odor or a perfume, but that perfume or that odor was that of affliction. I don't think we're like, you know, interested, you know, when you go to the store and you're looking for, you know, perfume or cologne, you're like, you know, that one, you know, like, I think it's called sacrifice. (laughs) Do you have that? It kind of smells like death, you know? Um, I'm looking for uh, affliction. Everyone's like, you know, no, that's not what we asked for, is it? We're, we're, we're thinking of things that are pleasant. Thyatira was an odor of affliction. It was, it was a perfume of sacrifice. Interesting, I'm not going to get into it, but Thyatira is the longest letter to all the churches. The era of church history is around 500 to 1000 AD, and obviously we know that this spiritual darkness will continue into Sardis as well. It was the beginning of the Dark Ages, where access to the scriptures were limited and at times even outlawed. Why would access to the scriptures be limited or outlawed? Because of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Because of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, no, you can't read it. You can't rightly understand it or divide it. You need me to do that. And so we have a priestly class, but the effect of a priestly class, not every member a minister, not every saint a servant, not everyone with their head in the word of God. No, we need a priestly class. It produces blindness. And lo and behold, shocker, we enter into a thousand years of spiritual darkness. Some call that the dark ages. We don't want to call it that way anymore. We want to say medieval or the Middle Ages. I think we got it right the first time. We see in this time superstitious or mystic practices on the rise. And what do we, what do we find? A stench. There's a stench in the air. A stench is present. Revelation 2 verse 18 And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. In verse 18, how is Christ portrayed to the church of Thyatira? Christ calls himself the Son of God, and has eyes like fire and feet like brass. In this manner, Christ is the purifier of his church. We saw earlier in Ephesus, Christ is the prime mover. We saw that in, in, in Smyrna, Christ is the one who remains. We saw in Pergamos that Christ is the divider. And now in Thyatira, we see Christ as the purifier of his church. And he will refine the church to see what remains. Verse 19, I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works 
and to the last to be more than the first. So we've seen that Christ is the purifier of this age. But how is Thyatira viewed? And will this be the church that describes you? You see, Christ saw this church's charity. He saw their service and faith. They were patient and willing to do the work, esteeming others better than themselves. And they esteemed others in such a way that that it was pleasing in God's eyes. They loved the Lord and they loved others. So where's the warning? I'm, I'm conflicted in this. Let's look at verse 20. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Now, historically, just outside of Thyatira, there lay a small shrine. Guys, this is a trip. Do you know what they say historically that that shrine was? A white stone. Pergamos was given this white stone by which they could build the church of God, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. What what pops up right after that is you have this this soothsayer, this oracle named Sambatha. It was a shrine of Sambatha outside of, of Thyatira. She was a witch, a seer. And at this location, it was a white stone. Isn't it interesting how Satan always gives a counterfeit to God's truth? So was this the Jezebel in Revelation 2? Historically, like during this time, is, is Sambatha, is, is that who we're speaking of? Is, did did, did the, the, the seer have presence in the church? Well, possibly, possibly. But... If we are to follow the breadcrumbs that that we've already been given, we find that the church of Pergamos had just been married to the world. The struggle of that church was that they had one foot in the church and one foot in the world. And maybe some of us realized that as we walked through that church, maybe even as we were discussing that church, you realize in that moment... Oh God, that's me. I pray you don't leave here tonight without coming to the altar and making that right with him. Sitting with a friend, going in the back, going outside and saying, God, I'm done. I'm done playing church. I'm done having one foot in the world and one foot in the church. I'm done. I realize now that the church has nothing to offer me, and any salvation that it gives me is only slavery. And any marriage that it gives me is only going to be bondage. What did I say? Ah, you know what I mean. (laughs) Thank you, Ben. I appreciate it. Sometimes your mind is just going... Listen... In Pergamos, was I describing you? Was I describing you? If so, man, you need to listen. Okay, so I thought we're in Thyatira. We are. If I just described you, or if you've been listening to the church of Pergamos, you need to keep listening as to what happens in Thyatira. So listen now. Whenever there is a marriage, many of us understand this, whenever there is a marriage, what follows? 
children. Children. Almost always in a marriage, children follow. And in Thyatira, the offspring of that complacent union produced something far worse than the ambivalence of Pergamos. The fruit of Pergamos produced something far worse than the initial marriage. The fruit of that was Thyatira. No longer are we just dealing with believers who are trying to walk a tightrope between God and the world. Now the fruit of that marriage is that false teaching, it's not that, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I also have worldly friends. No, now what we find is that false teaching has infiltrated the very church. And mark it down. Any partnership of the church with the world will always produce heresy in the next generation. Pergamus was married to the world. We should not be surprised that here comes Thyatira and it's the kid. It's the child of that unholy union. For this very purpose, Christ has come for his church and possibly for you to purify his saints. You see, this wasn't just a marriage of convenience anymore. With one foot in church and one in the world, the marriage bore fruit as it always does. In Thyatira, now the church, trying to stay relevant with its ungodly spouse. Did you guys catch that? The church in Thyatira is trying to stay relevant with its ungodly spouse. And it was looking for a way. What does the church in Thyatira do? They look for a way to change its faith. And so we bring in Jezebel, the false teacher, who is teaching the congregation to fornicate. And I'm not speaking of a physical context. I'm speaking of a spiritual fornication where the word of God is being mired with the thoughts and philosophies of the world. And so in Thyatira, we have from that marriage, the offspring, which is spiritual fornication. Christ has come to Thyatira to purify his church. The marriage bore fruit as it always does. In Thyatira, we have this church trying to stay relevant with its ungodly spouse. And it's looking for ways to change its faith to fit into the current construct. Thyatira thus becomes the first deconstructionist. Thyatira. They are the first example that we have in scriptures historically of a church that is trying to deconstruct its faith. So that we may, and and the whole purpose of of deconstruction is always this. Don't believe the hype, y'all. The whole purpose of deconstruction is always so that we may fit more properly into the postmodern aesthetic. Don't miss that. The purpose of the deconstructionist is never to get closer to God because God already gave you his word. He's given you his word. The purpose is always to stay relevant and fit more properly into the context of, for us, our postmodern aesthetic. Looking for ways to make Christianity seem valid, but valid to who? The reprobate mind. 
I'm just looking for ways to, to be relevant to the lost world. So what I need to do to do that is I need to change my faith. So I'm going to change, and I will, listen, prostitute myself, just as Jezebel taught me. I'm going to prostitute myself so that I can fit into the uh, construct or context of today. When this is complete, the lost world, which is Jezebel, has not only a place, but a platform within the church. The platform is right here. Right here, speaking to you, teaching to you, telling you what to think. And guys, all you got to do is look online. There are so-called believers, whether we believe that or not, that are teaching the church, church a new doctrine that is not from the Word of God. And they've deconstructed their faith so that it can fit into the context of today, not into the context of Christ's mind. God help us. So are you like Thyatira? You know, some people were amening. Some people were like, man, I, I get that. Sometimes Some of you guys were agreeing. I guarantee in a room like this, some of you guys are struggling with this very thing. That man, you, you get it and you're thinking through it. And, and, and you know what you're saying? I love God. I love Jesus. I want to follow him. I love this church. I love what, what God is doing. But at the same time, there's this turmoil in your mind because you are so desperate to stay relevant in the world's eyes. And you've become a respecter of persons. And the philosophies of men and the traditions of men have done what? They've blinded you. And they've corrupted you. And so now you look at the word of God and you look at the circumstances of life and there are two authorities for you. And you're going to try to figure out what, which one fits this context today. And, and maybe the word of God will help me tomorrow. And, and maybe this teaching from this man will help me at this moment. Thyatira needed the final authority of God's word. They needed to be purified by the washing of water of the word in their lives. The problem is, is they allowed the word of God to be commingled with the philosophies and teachings of this world. And it began to blind them and even change the doctrines of the church. Deconstructing your faith, like Thyatira, right? We do that so we can fit in with the current, yet so interesting, guys. What, what always happens with culture? It changes. Have fun. Have fun. Okay. And guys, right now, culture, fashion, Music, the arts, it's not like every 10 years. Uh, you know, I teach art at, at, at a local school. And when I talk about eras of art, sometimes I say the Renaissance lasted from 1400 to 1600. That's 200 years. And when we're talking about movements today, we're speaking in regards to decades or, or summers. I'm not kidding. If you think I'm joking, and, and the arts always are a reflection of a political agenda or of a social construct. And so my point is this. If you are going to deconstruct your faith, which takes time, by the way, to fit into the current construct, guess what? You're behind. And so what do you do then for the rest of your life? You constantly are breaking things down. After a while, what do you get rid of? I mean, come on now. It's just too much work. 
And for the most part, after a while, you leave the faith altogether. So what happens next? Revelation 2.22. Behold, I will cast her, Jezebel, into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds, and I will kill her children with death. That's crazy. That's some heavy talk. Like, when someone says, I'll kill you with death, it's like, I kind of got it when you said kill, but then I'll kill you with death, you know. Uh, We're actually speaking of of a plague or a a supernatural effect of death being placed on a a people. The first time I read that, I'm always like, we we understand. (laughs) I'll kill you with death. It's a plague or, or some type of event in, in history by which God will display this discipline in that manner. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. God says, I'm going to cast her and her followers into a bed. I will give her what she wants, but in this bed she won't make it out, and neither will you. Let us plead with the psalmist of Psalm 7-9 when it says, Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just, for the righteous God trieth the hearts and reigns. Revelation 24-29, through But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye have already hold, um, but that which ye already have, hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. That's kind of an important phrase. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To the overcomers of this age, God says that he will give you power over the nations. Now, obviously, that is a millennial reference. And so if you're doing any type of of biblical study on this from a a prophetic landscape, we're speaking of the church, but he is now transporting them to the millennium. So that's a millennial reference. And the reason why we can know that is the, the later statement of Christ ruling with a rod of iron. Psalm 2 is a reference you could look at. What, 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 what does this mean, though? Like, power over the nations and all these things. What it means now is that if you choose, Christian, if you choose to suffer now, if you choose to suffer now, you will rule with me later. Separating ourselves from the false teachers of this world, if you want to rule with me later, and that means you'll have to suffer with me now, Are you deconstructing your faith in such a way so that your doctrine can shift and meld with the false teachers of this world? Let me just say, at the end of that way, it will not mean or create more righteousness, but rather more death. Let's move on to Sardis. Sardis. Sardis means the red ones. The red ones. It was a time in church history from around 1,000 to 1,500 about to the Reformation. The church was more known for its military conquest than its spiritual exploits. This was an age of military domination where the streets were turned red with blood of anyone who dared to get in its way. 
The church showed great power and physical might, but was spiritually dead. A time of incredibly bloody persecutions, the Crusades and the Spanish Inquisitions. The Black Death was also, it also came about during this time. Some suggest that the Black Death produced anywhere from, and the numbers vary exceedingly, 25 million to 200 million. 200 million individuals may have died from this plague, and the plague was anywhere from four to seven years. That's incredible. Death surrounded this era, and it was literally in the air. Revelation 3, 1. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. In Sardis, Christ is portrayed as the one who has the seven spirits of God, who stand before the throne. And these seven spirits of God were sent out into all the earth. Do you guys see how the seven spirits of God behave as missionaries? They behave as sent ones. They behave serving the purposes of the Lord. He also holds the seven stars in his hand, which were the seven angels of the churches. In Sardis, this, this church that was physically powerful, yet spiritually dead, this church that was full of pomp and circumstance, Christ is engaged in the real mission of the church. Christ is a kingdom builder. Guys, I, I told Brandon this earlier. Are you guys seeing the, the similarities about the, the, the reference to a tower? But one of his main points was, was to take account of the building, of the builder. In this, we find that Christ is the kingdom builder, the true kingdom builder. Not the building that, that the false church was setting up with its physical might, but the church of God. Christ is a kingdom builder, but it's not a physical kingdom here on earth. It's a spiritual kingdom in the hearts of men. He is not mandating social change through political action. Did you guys hear that? Christ is not mandating social change through political action. Christ is seeking to infuse the church once more again with his power to reignite the true missionary work. That is what God is desiring to do as the kingdom builder of his kingdom. He says, listen, it's time for me to send out the seven spirits of God, the seven stars of God. I need to reignite the church with my power and I need to infuse them with the true missionary spirit. Verse 1, again, it says, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art dead. That should place fear in every single one of us in this room. That you have a name that appears from everyone on the outside. It appears like you're a good, godly Christian doing a good, godly work. And yet, unbeknownst to you... You're dead. Sardis was a dead church. <laughs> and that's what Pergamos and Thyatira produce. That's what Pergamos, a marriage, and Thyatira, its offspring, produces. Death. 
whenever you marry with the world, and whenever you then, as Brandon was saying earlier, you, you capitulate with the world, what does it produce? Death. Death. I don't know if you're just getting lost in the history. It actually is fascinating. But I'm hoping you see yourself right now. I hope you see that the, the end result always of a person who has wed themselves to the world. Guys, I'm telling you, marriages almost always produce fruit. And the children of that marriage will be desiring to deconstruct the church in such a way where the false teachers of this place, the philosophies of the world, will co-mingle with the Word of God. As the Word of God is tarnished, it produces death. Death. Sardis was dead. I'm looking at a room of mostly people 18, maybe to 30, I don't know. And Doug. I'm looking at a, at a room that is full of so much potential. And some of you are already making the choice to be pergamous. Some of you are choosing to wed yourself with the world even this very month. And I want to warn you I want to tell you, I want to uh, set a firecracker under your butt. I don't know what it is. I want, I want you to wake up to realize that Pergamus produces Thyatira, and Thyatira produces Sardis. It's like we're surprised when all of a sudden someone says two plus two is four. We're like, I know I've heard it before, but that's crazy. I'm too old. There's a... Arrested Development. Has anyone ever watched Arrested Development? You got Tobias and his wife, and they, and they choose to, to live a swinging lifestyle. They're going to be they're going to have an open marriage. And a guy asked, "Has that ever worked?" Well, no, no, it's never worked, but it may work for us. And I think about that ridiculous comment, and it's such a foul you know show and such a foul comment, but that's us when we want to we want to go down some perverse path some ridiculous path, and someone says, has that ever worked? And you're like, oh, no, but it may be for me. <laughs> it might for me. Do you guys see how ridiculous that is? You're purposely choosing to be Pergamus. Don't you know Pergamus creates Thyatira? And once the Word of God has been changed, and once we deconstruct the Word of God, it will produce death. And for some of you, you need to realize that, yes, I am actually speaking of your physical children. If you can't hear the spiritual conversation, if you're too carnal right now to hear the spiritual conversation, maybe in some way I can warn you or create a, a place of fear for you that it is not worth it to co-mingle with the world. It is not worth it to be in a place where doctrine begins to be shifted and changed so that you stay relevant with the church. I'm telling you, you will lose your children if that becomes you there. Spiritually speaking, how can we raise a church if we choose to do this here? I am telling you, and most of you come from those churches, it's why you're here even now, is because you, ex you exited a place of what? Death. Death. Christ said, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. You don't even know it, you're dead. 
You have a reputation, but those days are gone. You're washed up. You're the artist who everyone laughs at your music now. You're washed up. You're the person who still thinks you're famous, and everyone's just like, oh, please, stop acting. (laughs) Right? We know. That's how we are as the church. Sardis, please just stop. You're embarrassing yourself. You're embarrassing me. Sardis, you're dead. You're washed up with no reality of what made you great in the first place. You're generations removed of what made you great. You're so far removed, you don't even know how to get back there. You're a phantom of the past, quite literally a haunt with no Holy Spirit, only stories of past victories. So what does Christ tell us to do? Verse 2, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I am not for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt know what and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. What is Christ going to do again in this in this age? Build his kingdom. Because the church was occupied building another altogether. Is this you? Do you feel that your walk with Christ is dead? If so, the Lord says, if you're going to survive, then you've got to strengthen that which is dying. We have to get back to the real mission of the church, which is the eternal word of God being placed into the eternal souls of men, building up, building up with Christ, our kingdom builder, who is the king, building up the spiritual kingdom once more. We need a spiritual rebirth. 1 Peter 1, 23. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. You and I have to remember what we used to stand for. Maybe it's time for you, Christian, to return to where it all started. You've wandered and lived off of the vestiges of yesterday's spirituality for far too long. And the only person you're tricking is you. But, and if you don't repent, then know this. He is coming again. And he is coming as a thief in the night. And you will suffer great loss when he comes and you're not ready. Verse 4 through 6. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So, to the overcomers of this age, to the real church in Sardis, not the the false church, not the replacement church, not, the, not the, the puppet church, but the real church in Sardis. Christ says, I will clothe you in white, and your names will not be blotted out. Guys, can I just say, in a room this size, I know there are some here that give the appearance of life. I know that there are some here that give the appearance of life, but in reality, you are spiritually dead. 
Isn't it time to stop playing games? You're only fooling yourself. You're hanging on from a thread. You're living off of the vestiges of some form of true spirituality years ago. You have a name that you're alive, but that reputation is based upon another time, another season. It's time, as Christ just said, he wants to give us white raiment. He wants to place that upon us. It's time we put on the new garments of the new man afresh for a new day. And let's start building his kingdom. So it appears we're now down to the last two churches, Philadelphia and Laodicea. Philadelphia is the church of brotherly love. This, are you guys still awake? Yep. Okay. okay. Everyone's still here? Philadelphia is the church of brotherly love. This church era began with the much-needed reformation of the 1500s and lasted until 1900, thereabouts. The church of Sardis, as we just said, was on life support, completely off track and off mission. And yet through the workings of God's Holy Spirit, a reformation began in the hearts of men. Philadelphia thus becomes the church of the open door, bringing the mission of God to the entire world. I wish I had more time to speak of the exploits of this church and of the power of the Holy Spirit moving through it. I wish I did. We just don't. You need to read about it. You need to study it. It's, it's wonderful. Philadelphia, guys, it's like, man, that's why I wanted to sing a happy song, right? I'm just... <laughs> Pergamus and Thyatira and Sardis, but man, the best thing that could have happened to Sardis is that they died, <laughs> is that the church came to an end and Philadelphia was reborn. The church was alive again. It was fresh again. Reformation was in our hearts, was in our lives, which is why we do things just like this. It's why we have retreats. It's why we get away. It's why you're listening to me just blab on and on and on, right? It's so that we can, be, we can have a time of rebirth with God. Of all the things that we've allowed to die so that God would be glorified in us again. Philadelphia is the church on revival. Oh, wow. Wow. It's the church on revival, it's the church that we all aspire to be, and that church can only happen both in a negative way. Act like Sardis is actually here. I'm, I, I keep going back to this place. <laughs> both in a negative way, but here in the positive way. What needs to happen to the church in order for the church to have revival? Death. We gotta die. We've gotta die. The only way for Philadelphia to become the church that it was going to become is for Sardis to blow it so bad. Sardis, man, they screwed up so bad that the whole church that was truly bought by the precious blood of Christ, the whole church is just going, what the crap, man? Like, what's that about? The church has to die. You and I, we have to die. We have to die to our own agenda. We have to die to the corruption. Because listen, you're like, well, couldn't Philadelphia? No, it couldn't have. And neither can you. We have to see the destitute nature of where we are. We have to see that I'm such a puke. 
I, in order for me to come up here or for me to, to, at the end of this service, to pray with this person around you, outside, in the back, wherever, the only way for that to happen, the only way for us to truly be a Philadelphian church is we have to come to the place where we say, oh God, I must die, I must decrease, and you must increase. God, it's got to be you. We got to die. The Philadelphia church is on revival. It's the church that we aspire to be. The mission has been restored. God has opened the door because the church has finally opened the book. All we need to do is walk through that door and walk through this book. Guys, did I just describe you? I pray I did. I so pray I did. I've been thinking about this for for both messages. I've been looking forward to this point. To ask that question, did I just describe you? And I get it, we're struggling. We still deal with all kinds of garbage and things, but I pray in this room that we have saints who truly are Philadelphian. I pray that. I desire that. I want that for you. I want all of us to get to this place where we say, I have to die, Lord. I've got to die for you to use me. And God, I want revival in my life. I'm going to stick to this book. And God, would you please open doors? Open doors and I'll walk through them. Oh God, please, not my life, but yours. Not my agenda, but yours. Oh God, make me a Philadelphian Christian. Is your ministry, is it full of open doors? Are you in a season of revival? Is God just just blowing the doors down, quite literally, of your ministry? Oh, I pray he is. I pray he is. Man, I, I, and for some of you, I know he is. I'm thankful for that. Verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. In Philadelphia, Christ is true and holy. He is true and holy, set apart and authentic. He is holding the key of his kingdom. Who was David again? He was God's man, who, and, and he was the king of Israel. Who, who is holding the key? Well, the Lord is holding the key of David. The Lord is holding his key. He's holding the key of his kingdom. What was in Sardis? What were we looking for? The kingdom to be rebuilt? Well, guess what? The home's been built, and Christ has the key. He's the key holder. The key of authority and power. He opens and no man shuts. He shuts and no man opens. When you get saved, is this the Savior that you put your trust in? Is this the God you know? One who has all authority. Is this the God who changed your life? Romans eleven thirty six. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Is this your heart posture? In this church, Christ reveals himself as the way. Christ is the king. Christ is the king. And when Christ is the king of our hearts, 
when Christ is operating in that function, guess what happens? Revival in your life. Revival in your discipleship. Revival in your small groups. Revival on campus. Revival in your family. Revival at your workplace. Revival in your marriage. God revives everything when he is king. When he's king. Guys, there is no other way in. He holds the key to his kingdom, and there is no other way to success. He is the key holder. Only through him do we live and move and have our being. All hope and dependency is found in him. Revelation 3, 8, I know thy works. Guys, I just, I love this verse, by the way. I know thy works. Behold. (laughs) He doesn't even name them. (laughs) It's like, it's like. I know that works. Even Thyatira is known for things. And I know that works. Anyway, you know, he keeps going on. (laughs) This is Philadelphia. But guys, I hope you caught that. I hope you caught that. He says, I know thy works. I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength. And what's the one thing that they did? And you have kept my word. You have kept my word and has not denied my name. So how is the Philadelphian church portrayed? Well, the Lord says, I know your works, and yet none are listed. It's not about Philadelphia. Rather, what is mentioned is that they have kept his word and not denied his name. What a striking statement. Verse 9, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee, because thou hast kept the word of my patience. Are you guys noticing a theme? I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. Listen, if you want revival in the church... It will start with an open book in the open doors of people's hearts. If you want revival in the church, if you want revival in your life, if you want revival in the ministry, it will start with an open book in the open doors of people's hearts. The world is going to come and worship at your feet, but not for how great you are, but because you have pointed them to Christ. The way. Revelation 3.11 Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem. You want to know why God says you will no longer go out? Because he wants to enjoy you. He says, I'm not going to send you back out. When your work is done, I'm going to plant you right in front of me. Because you know what God wants to do? Wow. Wow. Look what I did in you. He makes you a pillar in the temple of God. He says, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from From my God I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. I hope you guys get this. This is a quick point I'm going to make, but to the overcomers of this age, right? For those who seek revival. Do you guys want revival? 
I hope. It's, it's pretty simple. You want to have revival? Don't ever forget that he's coming. He is coming soon. Don't ever forget that. You want to have revival? Hold on to that which has been given to you. Hold fast to that which God has given you. And number three, don't let anyone steal your rewards. You want revival? It's those three things right there. As we close our study, we will look at one last church. And it is the church of our day. If I were to ask the question, did I just describe you? The answer would almost certainly be yes. For it is the church we occupy. But that doesn't have to be the case. We don't have to be the Laodicean church. The church of Laodicea is our final church in church history, which tells us something that God is coming soon. Its name means so fittingly the rights of the people. It's so fitting that the very last church of of church history is not the rights of God, but the rights of the people. The problem is, is if I remember the scriptures right, I'm bought with the price. Therefore, I am to glorify God in my body and in my spirit, which belong to him. My agenda's over. I'm a slave. I don't have rights. We're the rights of the people, representing a time from 1900 to the present With this church, the rights of the people supersede the rule of God. What was it again with Ephesus? That the purposes of God were more significant than the what? The person of God. And I'd say, well, at least least Ephesus had something. With Laodicea, the rights of the people, my personal rights... You have violated my rights. How many times do we hear that? I'm offended. I can't believe you you would speak to me this way. The only reason we speak that way is because we are entitled people that have rights. I have rights. The rights of the people supersede the rule of God. We are, or it is, a church set on individual rights and privilege. In Laodicea, self-sacrifice has been replaced with self-respect. In Laodicea, humility has been replaced with a godlike worship of self. You know it's true. In Laodicea, thus saith the Lord has been replaced with yea hath God said. Our Bible has been replaced with commentaries and self-help books. Our churches have been replaced with community groups. Our pastors, leaders, and mentors have been replaced by celebrities. The gospel has been replaced by social causes. And local worship has been replaced with YouTube channels. And every bit of those is true. And you know it. And I know it. Is it not the case 
That instead of us submitting to the body of Christ, instead of us finding protection and guidance within the local church, which has pastors and leaders and deacons and teaching elders, instead of finding our maturation and growth and development from those under shepherds, who do we turn to? Oh, I don't know, celebrities. Well, that's foolish. Is it? Is it? Celebrities tell us what to do in regards to everything. I won't vote unless I know what my favorite celebrity tells me to do. You see, we struggle so much. It's so difficult to be submitted to Pastor Brandon. It's so difficult. Sometimes you say such hard things. It's so strikingly difficult for us to be submitted to the church. But if the world tells you to jump off a frickin' cliff, you're like, well, that seems sensible. And we do it. We complain about the narrow-minded nature of the church. Come on. Open your eyes. You're listening to foolish people who live out fake lives. Their whole life is a farcity. There's nothing to it. And yet that's the people that we take our, our, our teaching cues from. You're like, well, no, no, no. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. It's completely infiltrated the church. We are the church that seemingly has everything it needs. We have everything figured out. All the while, we are wearing no clothes. God is telling the church, I'm sorry, God is telling the truth to a church that doesn't want to hear it. And we would rather lie to ourselves than face the facts of our illness. Revelation 3, 14, it says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. In Laodicea, Christ is the Amen. He is true and faithful. He is the beginning of our faith in God. He is the firstborn of the dead. In this letter, in the final letter that John wrote that was inspired by Jesus Christ, in this final letter to the church of, of Laodicea, Christ is the truth. It's like the Bible knew that this generation was going to deal with the problem of absolute truth. It's as if the Bible knew that we were going to be at this very moment in a time of pluralism, relativism, postmodern thought, where consensus is more important than truth. I'd rather collaborate than actually do something that's true and real. We're so afraid of standing out and being that lone individual that is crying like John the Baptist saying, repent, for he's coming again. Isn't it interesting that to Laodicea, which I believe that we know all, all too well, that Laodicea needs, of all things, they need the truth. They need the truth. Because so much of our lives is, is, is held captive by Literally, yes, relativism and pluralistic thought. The snake eating its own tail that takes us no place. There's nowhere to go from it. 
in this letter, Christ is the truth for a church that can't see. He is the truth for a church that has lied to itself for far too long. Verse 15 and 16, I know thy works that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Christ is the truth, but Laodicea is a lukewarm church. Laodicea is a lukewarm church. God says, I wish you were one or the other. And you know what? Here's the deal with Laodicea. You're not bad. You're just not good. You're not bad. You're just not good. You're just kind of complacent. You go to church. You tithe. You serve on Sundays and during the week at times. But the fervor is gone. With God, he's lost his appetite. No longer are we a sweet savor. Now we've become a stench in his nostrils. And Christ continues in verse 17. He says, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. We are the church that just continues to lie. Did you guys see that in verse 17? That's what we are. We're just a bunch of liars. The problem is, is that we're not lying to God. No, we lie to ourselves. We constantly are lying to ourselves over and over. We say that we're rich and increased with goods. We go on discipleship trips and we fail to teach our very own children. We travel the world and yet won't tell our neighbor about Christ. No, you're not rich. You're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. It's time we stop playing games. So what does the poor Christian need? Verse 18 gives us the answer. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Isn't it great that God says, listen, I'm only doing this because I love you. Hey, I want to tell you something. Um, I'm only saying this. Listen, I have a really hard thing to tell you. I'm only saying this because I really, I, I, I love you. That's our God. That's our God. For the church that can't see the truth, we need to be acquainted with the truth. We need to invest in, in items. We need to invest in pursuits that will pass through the fire of God's judgment. We need to invest in clothing that is fit for our wedding. We need to see this world through the vision of the Holy Ghost. Did you guys see that? I just read you verse 18 again. Upon doing these three things, investing in eternal matters, clothing ourselves, putting on the garment of Christ, which is leading up to our wedding day, that we would clothe ourselves as if we are going to marry our groom. 
And that we would see this world through the vision of the Holy Ghost. Upon doing these three things, we can finally operate from a place of zealousness and repentance. Verse 20 gives us one of the most inappropriate verses in the entire Bible. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. It is remarkable to me that Christ is on the outside of the church. How often have you thought about this passage and thought that Christ is on the outside of the world trying to get in? Guys, it's the church that we're talking about. Christ is on the outside of his church, of his bride, and we aren't letting him in because we like it like this. Christ is on the outside of his very own church. He is knocking and he's beckoning to his church, to his bride, to simply let him in. When I think about that, I think about the the humility of Christ. The poor spirit of Christ and how he he condescends to us. He says, if if we can, if, if you can just hear my voice and open the door, if you would just open the door, that I will come in and I'll dine with you and you with me. Is it not truly some? There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. No friend like him is so high and holy. No, not one. No, not one. And yet no friend is so meek and lowly. No, not one. No, not one. Verse 21, it says, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and am set down with my Father in his throne, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To the overcomers of this age, what sounds like the most outlandish statement of our whole study, for those who are not even allowing God into his very own church, God says, for those who overcome this age, I'm going to allow you to sit with me at my throne. That is, if we choose to open the door, to let him back into his church, and to sup with him. Did I just describe you? And if so, what are you going to do? I'm going to ask the praise team to come forward if you can. and I just want us to have a spirit of reflection right now. And I don't want to dictate anything. I'm not trying to create an emotional response right now, but... Sometimes we do need to respond to the emotions that God has placed in our heart and our life. And for some of us, we need to get up even right now. I know that there will be people available to pray with you, standing, I'm I'm assuming, probably up here at the altar. Maybe you need to pray with someone. Maybe you need to pray by yourself. Maybe it's okay for you to stay seated. Usually not. Usually not. It is so important for us to make a statement before the people that that, that love us and we love for some of us, we need to come forward. For some of us, we need to go behind. For some of us, we need to go outside. We need to grab someone. We need to pray with someone. Did you guys not see the progression? 
Did you not see yourself in one of these churches? I pray, that was my whole desire, is that we would be able to locate ourselves in maybe one, maybe more, I don't know, but that you'd be able to locate yourself and you'd realize that from the precepts of God's word that he just described you. Maybe you're Ephesus and you didn't deal with it last night. Maybe you're going through a time of Smyrna and you feel like you're getting your lunch, your lunch handed to you. Maybe, maybe you're in Pergamos and you right now are thinking about wedding yourself to the world. Guys, I'm telling you, the results of Pergamos are always Thyatira, which will mean a lessening on that grip of the book. And as that happens, the result will be Sardis, which is death. But, man, if we can spin it in any way, if we can do that, only in Sardis can we get to Philadelphia. For some of us, we need a Sardis moment. For some of us, even right now, you need to, whether you believe that you're at Sardis or not, you know what we need to do? We need to fast forward. Maybe you're at Pergamos. We can, we can avoid the whole trials of Thyatira. Praise God, yes? And we can skip over that fornication. We can skip over that loss. And we can realize, oh no, I'm at Pergamos, but I realize right now it's going to cause my death. How about we just skip to it? How about right now we make a decision as we praise the Lord, as we stand together. How about for some of us, man, by God's grace, many of us, you know what would be great? If they're praying on their own while we're, while we're praying. If they're praising the Lord, I'm sorry, if they're praising God and, and the rest of us are, are lifting up the Lord in our prayers and our petitions. And guys, Philadelphia is the place of revival, and yet what happens still with the church we're back to where we started once again. Let's pray. Can we pray together? If you feel like God is calling you to make a decision even today, I pray that you will not stay in that seat. I pray that you will not... Man, guys, I know what it's like. I know what it's like to, to sit in that chair, and you know that God is telling you to make a decision, and your feet feel like they are 10,000 pounds. I'm asking you right now, Maybe even in the midst of my prayer, even right now, will you come forward? Will you make a decision right now? Will you repent? Let's pray. Father, please do your work and have your way even still in this place. God, I pray that you would be glorified and that your Holy Spirit, God, would infuse this room that we would have power from on high to make choices that will not just last this weekend, not just last to the next conference, not just last till we're married or we have kids, but God, that will last our whole life. God, please have your way in this church, and we pray these things knowing you are faithful to accomplish it. Amen. that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in His Word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.